You can turn in your Bible to the book of Luke, chapter 6, as where our passage for this evening is. Luke 6, 27 through 36, for our fourth week in our Imagine That series, tonight titled Sacrifice. <clears throat> you know, 30 years ago, psychologists and scientists believed that babies could not think at all, that they were, they were irrational or illogical, they're little self-centered balls of need and want. Some of you are saying amen. <laughs> what science has learned in the last 30 years is that this is not true, that the children are observing the world and thinking about it, coming to logical conclusions from the first day that they're born. In fact, uh, one researcher and two of her colleagues decided to summarize a lot of this research in a book called uh, The Scientist in the Crib, meaning that babies are like little scientists. They, uh, they argue that when a small baby sits in a high chair and drops a spoon onto the floor over and over and over for mom or dad to pick it up, what the baby is doing, essentially, is running a little baby-sized experiment. Because it turns out that babies are, are very interested and things like gravity, uh, how gravity works. The fact that things fall down and not up is not obvious to babies. And it turns out another thing they're very interested in is human beings and how they work. We're actually the lab rats in their experiments. <laughs> they're actually doing experiments on us to see how we tick. So when you play drop the spoon, you get two for the price of one. You get an experiment about gravity, a little physics lesson, tutorial. You get a psychology lesson. You can see about how that person will do something over and over again, like pick it back up and give it back to you. Now, while kids think with the same logic that adults use and, and they apply it really just as, as rigorously as we do as they learn and develop, there are certain things that they simply do not know and take a while to figure out. Up to six or seven years old, for example, it's, it's not exactly clear to anyone uh, what is imaginary and what is not. Or if wishing for something can make it true. There's a wonderful little experiment about this, actually, that uh, Paul Harris in England did, where he got children to imagine something in a box. So he would say, okay, now here's this box. We're going to open it. We're going to close it. You've seen what was there. Now let's imagine there's a puppy inside the box. Or else let's uh, imagine that there's a monster inside the box. And he would ask the children, is there really a monster in the box? Is there really a puppy in the box? And they would say, no, they were just imagining it. Then the researcher would walk out of the room, leaving the box behind with the child and then something funny would happen. The kids who were told to imagine a puppy in the box would go over and peek inside the box just to check. And the kids who were told that there was a monster in the box, well, you can guess, they would not just fail to walk over and peek inside the box, but would slowly edge away from the box. So they weren't going to take any chances just in case wishing or imagining actually could make monsters happen. They didn't want to take the chance 
about what was going on inside that box. Uh, But by the time children are six or seven, like grown-ups, they've understood that just wishing for things isn't going to make them happen. When they're small and experienced about what happens in the real world, children have to make these kind of logical inferences all the time based on whatever information they do have. The point is that imagination is powerful. The Bible teaches us about a new life. Jesus goes around preaching that his new world is at hand, among them and within them when he leaves. That a new world has opened up in Jesus. The trouble is that we're so often distracted by the ways of this world that we don't stop to imagine what life in Jesus ought to be like. When we do, we might find out that our posture starts to change, that we start to to edge a little bit closer to the box. Of course, the difference is when we open it uh, to see God's kingdom and open God's word to hear about what it's like, it's not imaginary. In fact, it's the most real thing you could ever see. And tonight, we can, as we continue to imagine the characteristics and practices of the kingdom of God, we're seeking to draw closer to who and what Jesus calls us to be. It's Jesus' sermon on the flat place, similar to his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, that we find ourselves in Luke tonight. I want to read to you Luke 6, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. A church member was recently recounting to me a a story about a local ministry she uh, volunteers with. In fact, she leads it. It happens every Thursday night in a small little two-bedroom apartment across town. They gather up all the children in the area. Nearly all of them are first-generation Americans. A few volunteers show up every week to teach them Bible stories and run a weekly program, engage with their families, just a small part of of their ministry at the apartment complex. But they use a lot of pictures, and and they, uh, they post them up on the wall as they teach the Bible stories, just like you might if you were a Sunday school teacher. They're mostly computer printed or sheets of paper size. 
And they have them displayed all across the wall in what would be the living room of the apartment, but is in fact open area to teach 100 kids at once. They have them displayed, kind of hung up on clothespins or taped to the wall. It's like a who's who of Bible characters. It looks like they started at the beginning of the year teaching every story and never took one down. The whole wall is almost covered. That same room gets used throughout the week to meet with parents and help them work on paperwork they don't understand or register for services that they need. And one little boy was there waiting while his mother got some help. And so he was perusing the wall of pictures and looking at each one like it told an entire story that he'd never heard before. And so one of the women started explaining to him that these are Bible stories and telling him who all the characters were that he'd been looking at for half an hour or so. She was telling him, you know, we're, we're Christians and these are stories from the Bible that we believe about other people who knew and, and followed God. And about the time she was done explaining them all, the boy got a real worried look on his face and took her over to the middle of one of the pictures that had captivated his attention. It really struck him and he, he pointed sharply at a full color depiction of the crucifixion. He looked at her and said, are they going to do that to you too? The sacrifice is at the center of our faith. You know, really, it's at the center of all human history. Christianity is built on a trust, a belief in the sacrifice of the God that we believe in on our behalf, in our place, instead of us. Christianity is this sacrifice that we trust in. It's also a sacrifice that we make. I wonder as we read these difficult words from Jesus' sermon, if that kind of sacrifice that he describes is at the center of your life. You know, when Jesus speaks in his own sermon, he calls people to live like he's living. And the truth is that when we're done reading his instructions here in Luke 6, we're, we're left with a mistreated, bruised, red-faced, coatless, shirtless, empty-pocketed victim with nothing left to do except for love the very ones who caused it all. Miroslav Volf writes about forgiveness having overcome genocide in Eurasia. He says that to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. And Jesus comes on the scene in this passage and starts teaching us that we can be the end of evil if we'll refuse to repay evil with evil. He calls us to the same life that he was called to, a life marked by sacrifice. And the trouble is, uh, the Bible calls us to be living sacrifices. And as one preacher said, the trouble with the living sacrifice is that it tends to crawl off the altar. And so it is with us. God calls us to sacrifice, and that's a difficult way to live, a difficult place to be. 
That's why sacrifice requires of us this denial of self and surrender to others that Jesus describes in his sermon. It's a surrender to God. It's a surrender to people around us. It's a surrender even to our enemies, those who wish us harm. The trouble is most of us have a hard time loving the people that love us. Our favorite people can be hard to love. How are we supposed to love even those who don't or never will? We struggle to do good to others. But the bigger battle, the mark of those who belong to my kingdom, Jesus says, is loving those who mistreat you, who take from us, who curse us, who harm us, who borrow from us. Do to them, Jesus says, what you would have them do to you. It's that golden rule that he says sums up all of the law. Now the world would have us believe that the solution to our problems, especially those that mistreat us or harm us or take advantage of us, is to deal with them decisively, maybe forcefully, even violently, to put them in their place and end that problem. We're told that in a dangerous world full of enemies, we have limited options. The choice is eat or be eaten in a world full of predators. I read the Bible and I listen to Jesus' sermon and I think, how unimaginative is that? That our only option would be to out-harm our enemies or to out-force those who wish us harm. You see, Jesus knows that evil spreads like a contagion. It can be stopped only when hatred is absorbed. The way he describes it, it's just neutralized by love by people who are creative enough to refuse to let evil be returned. And so in this example, in this passage, for example, both the cheek and the cloak that are described exemplify this. Look at them with me. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. That's simple enough. You've heard that. But what does Jesus mean when he says, If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, many are quick to say Jesus doesn't want us to just be harmed or to be victims, but he calls us here to to take mistreatment and then to look the one who's mistreated us right in the eye as we offer to them the other cheek also. A turned cheek demands that the enemy acknowledge you. It demands to be looked at in dignity. It's a challenge to do again what I now offer to you. What you've taken, I now give to you. The power is not in your hands anymore. The honor is in mine. Because what you wish to take from me, you take no longer. I give it to you. The cloak is the same thing. If a thief is so generous as to kindly leave you your shirt as he takes your outer garment, Jesus says, Do not withhold even that also. Give him the very shirt off your back. It's another act of generosity that seems to overcome the harm being done, as if to say, you're not the one being generous. I am. And in offering the other cheek or the other shirt, really the violence done is exposed for what it is. And the one who is supposedly or intended to be a victim becomes the one with honor 
in the situation. It was Jesus who said of his own life in John 10, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And Jesus isn't even talking about our lives yet. He's just talking about your cheeks and your coats. But he says, if someone wishes to take it from you, you tell them, no one has taken from me. From the one who wants to take, I freely give. Overcome evil with good, Jesus says. Not in a way that dismisses evil or ignores our enemies as if we can simply uh, turn a blind eye to harm in this world and pretend it's not there. No, love doesn't ignore enemies. The whole point of this little parable is that it wants to change them. Hatred is what wants enemies to stay enemies. Keep their evil in full view so that the enemy stays there and then finally will be destroyed by it. Love doesn't do that. It doesn't ignore enemies. No, it wants to transform them. Those who belong to Jesus refuse to pay evil with evil, reject giving harm for harm or violence for violence. Instead, they pattern their behavior not by those who do wrong to us. We pattern our behavior after Jesus himself. We're called to act like those who belong to the reign of God. So we show love, we offer forgiveness, we live in generosity. These are a road marked by sacrifices each and every day. We do this not because it is effective, as if it's a covert strategy, you know, that we could just kill them with kindness. Uh, maybe if we're nice enough, we'll really put people in their place. No, that's what, that's what sinners do. They, they give back in the measure that they were given. They give love as a business exchange. We don't do that. We do it not because it works. Or because it is effective. We do it because it is the way of Jesus. The way of the cross. The one that Jesus says we'll have to take up if we ever fully want to follow him. It's marked by self-denial and surrender to others. We're to think of others first as if they were ourselves. The center of our faith is sacrifice. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, sacrifice is what comes in this world, Jesus says in this passage, to those who will be rewarded in the next Those who follow him will not find themselves at home or welcomed or comfortable in this world, no more than he was. How could you expect anything different? Those who walk in the way of Jesus will find themselves in the way of the cross. But our calling is to follow the way that he has shown us. To believe the words he gives us here in Luke 6, that in loving our enemies and doing good and lending without expecting anything back, then... With those sacrifices behind you, then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because He's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. 
Be merciful like he is. I heard the story of one dad who was explaining the Christmas holiday to his four-year-old daughter. It was the first time that she'd ever really asked about what that whole holiday meant. So he was explaining to her that this was celebrating the birth of Jesus. She wanted to know more about that. It's a very curious thing. And so they went out and they bought one of those kids' Bibles and they started doing the regular readings at night. She loved them. She wanted to know everything about the Jesus from Christmas. So they would read about his birth and about his teaching night after night. The book was highlighting some of the main teachings of Jesus. And she would ask constantly, tell me again, what was that phrase? And he would explain to her, oh, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they would talk about these old words and and what all that meant. And then one day, uh, the the two of them, the dad and his four-year-old daughter, were driving past a big church. And out front was this enormous crucifix. She said, who is that? And and I guess he he realized, you know, that they hadn't made it to that part of the story yet. And so uh, he kind of said, well, sort of, yeah, well, that's Jesus. I forgot to tell you how the story ended. So she asked him, well, what happened? How did he end up like that? The dad kind of nervously explained, you know, it's difficult to a four-year-old to put it in words that kind of make sense. And he said, well, you know, he, uh, he kind of ran afoul with the Roman government. The, the message that he had was so radical and so unnerving that the, the authorities at the time, they had to kill him. They came to the conclusion that he would have to die, that his message was too troublesome. It was about a month later after that Christmas and those Bible readings. They'd gone through the whole story of what Christmas meant. It was uh, you know, mid-January. The little girl's preschool celebrates the same holidays that all public schools celebrate. So Martin Luther King Day was a day off. So he took off work and they were spending some time together that day and were out playing and he took her to lunch. And they were sitting there... Uh, in a restaurant right, right at the table when the local newspaper happened to plop down next to them. And there, big as life, was a huge drawing. A 10-year-old kid had done it from a local school of, of Martin Luther King. She said, who's that? And the dad said, well, as it happens, that's Martin Luther King. Uh, he's why you're not in school today. So we're celebrating his birthday. This is the day that we celebrate his life. She said, so who is he? I said, well, he was a preacher. And she looked up at her dad and and said, for Jesus? He said, yeah, actually he was. Uh, But there was another thing that he was really famous for, which is that he had a message. He's trying to explain this to his four-year-old. It's the first time She's ever heard anything like this, so he's phrasing it very carefully. So he said, well, yeah, he was a preacher, and he had a message, and she said, well, what was his message? He said, well, he said that you should treat everybody the same, no matter 
what they look like. She thought about that for a minute. She said, well, that's what Jesus said. He said, yeah, you know, I guess it is. I've I've never really thought about it that way, but yeah, I guess that is sort of like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. She thought for a minute and looked up at her dad said, did they kill him too? First Peter 4 says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, at the, the fiery ordeal among you, which has come upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice. Sacrifice is at the center of our faith. Let's pray together. Father, you've called us to follow you with our own cross in hand. And we pray that in a world of difficulty and suffering and hardship and evil, that we would be marked as people of love, willing to sacrifice our own needs, our own selves, our own lives, our own comforts, so that we might live as you lived, so that we might rejoice with you forever. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.